actually being able to feel it at the end of the day in your tummy as you were like, ah, this is what I like. Uh, this is how I know I've made it to eat a kingly meal. Beef just represented that meal. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. So, I'm going to put my cards on the table right at the beginning of this one. I shift between periods of following a vegetarian and a vegan diet. Actually last year, or before last year, sorry, I spent a long time as a vegan, but the stress and time constraints that have come from the pandemic and then living in a tiny apartment with a tiny toddler have meant that now I'm back to vegetarian. And, you know, maybe maybe stress is no excuse, but I actually think that this points towards an issue that, that we should talk about more, which is that even though many of us think that it would be great as a society if we ate fewer or even zero animal products, it's actually very, very difficult to do this with the way that our culture and our society and our government are set up. So we really need to be aware of that and, and to meet people where they are on this issue, I believe. And I've, I've come to realize that you can't separate the eating of meat from its socioeconomic context or from government policy. So it's really, really hard to consistently be a vegan or a vegetarian in our societies, especially in in the Netherlands, um, also in, in many parts of the US, although I think in urban areas in the US, it's, it's getting a lot easier. But it's especially the case if you're time or you're cash poor, and government and culture and society are all working together to promote meat consumption. So all of this is a long preamble about why I love the work of Christopher Deutsch, who's my guest today. Christopher specializes in the history of meat consumption in the United States and how it's been entwined with government policy. You can find some links to some of his work in the show notes, and I'm sure that Chris is going to tell us more today about his book, Beeftopia, which is forthcoming with the University of Nebraska Press. There's been a lot of interesting things happening in this space at the moment. So the coronavirus pandemic has led a lot of people to re think or at least to talk about rethinking our relationship with the natural world and particularly with the animals that we eat. Not just in the US but also across the West as a whole, meat and dairy substitutes have really been taking off in recent years and more and more people have been eating products like Beyond Burgers or Impossible Meats or the Vegetarian Butcher which is the one that we find here in the Netherlands and across Europe. Down the line we even have the possibility of synthetic meat which is grown from cells rather than produced through animal cruelty and the first synthetic meat products just went on sale in restaurants in Singapore at some point over the previous few months. In a sense, whether all of these products will thrive and meat consumption will decrease will be a matter of individual choice, but it's also deeply influenced by government policy and by culture. So to help us place all of these events in the historical context and help us think a little bit about the future, I'd like to welcome Christopher to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So when we talk about meat consumption, we often run into this issue of naturalness, that it's natural to eat meat because humans have always done so, and that's completely true. But this, I think, can also detract a little bit from the novelty and the uniqueness in, in human history of the system of factory farming, which now feeds our industrial-scale meat consumption. Could you tell us a little bit about this transition to factory farming in the U.S.? and how it differed from the previous ways that animals had been raised for slaughter. Yeah, this is, I think, the big question that drives discussions about eating animals at all as a moral question. And um, the recent past, there have been tremendous transformations, the likes of which, as far as I know, have never been seen before. 
making them one of the few, you know, really unique developments in human experience. And it began uh, several different places, but the U.S. context is really important because the U.S. model kind of dominates global meat production styles. And there's the an early version emerges in pork industry around Cincinnati, a city called Porkopolypse by the uh, 1840s. Pork became an important product for the city as pigs would be, hogs would be driven into the city from the surrounding regions, from the surrounding farms, because corn at that point, up until the 1970s, really, was known mostly as its as an animal feed. So all of this corn that's being spread um, is feeding uh, pork, is feeding the, the really the development of pork as an industry. And that became like the first time that in the United States, meat was really becoming industrially produced, where uh, famously men in giant warehouses would work with these really, really dangerous sharp tools and hack animals and turn them into uh, meat that would be pickled or brined or some way transformed into a something you could transport and then sell in markets across the country or even across the world or there's attempts to do that. That is one model that started to emerge until a little small little town in out of out of the way northern part of the United States called Chicago became this industrial mecca off of the production of not pork, although their hogs are more plentiful, pork is more consumed across the United States, but of cattle, where the conquest of the Great Plains, the uh, winning of the Plains Wars, the the, the really the extermination of the uh, bison and the erasure of the, the Plains polities, the cultures that had lived in various ways, various relationships for a long time with the uh, bison, opened up rangeland for cattle, which then spread across, giving rise to a couple of really important things where ultimately a small group of people who specialized in slaughtering cattle were able to dominate both the selling of cattle to be turned into meat and the selling of meat to be turned into consumers' meals. So they were able to put pressure up and down the commodity chain to capture both ends and set the prices. They were then able to use their concentrated economic muscle to really uh, prep pressure on farmers, particularly by the 1900s. At this point, the big ranches are gone and it's a lot of small producers of cattle creating massive numbers of cattle. And then they're able to, with low cost cattle, turn that into a, a pretty cheap method of producing meat and then ship that meat particularly to the west coast at this time but not entirely or not strictly with new york city understandably being the big market and then slowly crack those markets by doing things like showing up in a small town in massachusetts buying uh or setting up shop and then driving the local meat uh purveyor the butcher out of business by undercutting them and absorbing the cost elsewhere in the commodity chain and the supply chain and their empires, their economic empires, and then hiring those people to be either factory workers or um, sales agents. This kind of creates the template for industrial meat and actually creates the big giant system of industrial meat production as we know it. Could you say a little bit about the the changes that this wrought in terms of the experience of the animals who were being farmed for meat? So what's the experience of an animal like in this kind of industrial agriculture 
compared to in previous, you know, pre-Lapsarian <laughs> agriculture? Yeah, the, the disappearance of the pastoral and the arrival of the factory. As this was happening, there was coincidentally and uncoincidentally, really, a rise of humane thinking among reformers and activist groups who, mostly based on a Christian or a um, Christian adjacent way of thinking, saw the uh, inflicting of suffering as a bad thing. Particularly work animals were their first uh, focus. That would be, of course, horses in the urban environment, most specifically. But Broadly, the thinking was even on a farm, animals could be hurt. Now, of course, because we're talking about the U.S., we're talking about U.S. history, that means, yes, unfortunately, enslavement was involved because one of the parallels people drew at the time is that how they treated their animals and how they treated the enslaved workforce were typically seen in parallel. So there is a connection there. And the thinking that as factory farming arose was a concern on slaughter and how slaughter particularly could be cruel or inhumane. As the concerns about animal safety picked up steam, particularly into the 1950s in the United States, it was actually pork and pigs that spawned the initial focus so that this led a focus to, is there a way to get meat that is cruelty-free or minimizing cruelty? And con connected to that is also the labor within the factories by the people themselves. That even if those workers in later time with people recording how workers actually acted, showing cruelty could be a commonplace occurrence, animal, humans basically beating animals and uh, doing all kinds of stuff, that the focus in the coming out of World War II when this kind of system of humane slaughter was being built in the United States was honestly on workers being asked to do you know, really demanding physical labor for 10, 12 hours, particularly slamming hammers into cattle to stun them, just doing that for like 10 hours and that being your career until, as they pointed out at the time, you would burn out rather quickly or having to wrestle a shackled hog and trying to slice their throat in a quick and efficient manner, which was a dangerous proposition in the best of times. So there's this twin concern again, where Workers and animals in same spaces are seen as equally deserving of laws and protections and regulations to keep them both safe. It turned out that what really mattered was the initial spark was showing what conditions were like. That's what hooked people to this issue to the point where even the agricultural committee members went to slaughterhouses, which seems like a radical move nowadays. But at the time, they kind of laughed about it. But that then quickly turned into an intense focus on the labor of it all, on the on how U.S. workers in an industrial economy should expect to be treated and what their employers are allowed to ask of them, and particularly focusing on the need to force companies, even small ones, to innovate, to save workers' lives, and to protect the safety of both the animal being slaughtered and the human doing the work. And it's a much different psychology than we have now, political culture than we have now, where the there was a willingness to say, you have to, if you're even if you're a small time producer, follow some standards. Yeah, and it, it, it makes me think a little bit about the way that um, conversations about, about slaughterhouses have been sparked again by the coronavirus outbreak. So there was a situation where slaughterhouses became places where coronavirus was being transmitted very heavily, very quickly. And there was also just, you know, been attention on the conditions in, in these slaughterhouses. But then maybe so let, let me put a, a hypothesis to you and you can tell me if this is completely rubbish based on, you know, your vastly great knowledge of this subject. But I mean, nowadays, it seems to me that slaughterhouse workers are quite likely to be immigrants. 
and to be people who don't have too much political power. And I, I spoke um, last year for the podcast to um, Art Cullen, who's the um, editor of a, of a newspaper in Iowa, and we, he talked about the meatpacking economy in, in his area. And he said that he'd heard people say, you know, oh, well, coronavirus is only a problem for those immigrants who live, you know, 20 to a dwelling, and I don't really care what happens in, in, in the meatpacking plants. Is it the case that back when legislation was was passed, there was more of an identification of the these workers as American workers, and then that maybe increased the desire to do something about it? Yeah, um, humane slaughter was initially passed when there was a really the the uh, early 1920s immigration quota system was still in effect, even if it had been incredibly modified throughout the 1950s, it was still a, you know a barrier to entry. And the idea of having factory workers who are not U.S. people, broadly defined, doing work that would produce things for people in the U.S. was a pretty scary proposition. The reality hadn't yet hit on how much that was about to happen. And even if the meat industry itself was driven by um, attempts by smaller, rural, less populous areas to steal union jobs and non-union, uh, put them into a non-union footing, even if that was an important part of the meat industry already by the 1950s, it's still not, it's still non-union, even if they're non-union workers in southern or rural areas, they're still seen as Americans. And the there's something that happens. And the, the, broad, the long short of it is the trying to boil it down to its easiest, shortest, most generalizable statement would be something akin to saying when other industries um, offshored or um, put their factories outside the United States, meat production fa uh, facilities found a way to take the non-U.S. worker conditions and put them into the U.S. and find a way to legally do it, um, much like the, the way uh, fruits and vegetables had done, um, the fruits and nuts industry in California and other places. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. In your work, you've written a lot about how government policy has shaped meat production and, and consumption. And this was the um, the this topic of your PhD thesis and, and I believe is central to, to your book as well. And it, particularly uh, about the unique role that beef has played in, in post-war American culture and also the role that government policy played in promoting beef consumption. So could you tell us a little bit about how it was that beef became synonymous with America and, and what role the government played in this in the post-war era? Okay, so I am writing a book for under contract right now with the University of Nebraska Press, tentatively titled Beeftopia, the Red Meat Politics of Prosperity in Post-War America, where I look at how during the Great Depression and into World War II, an idea emerged, widely shared, that the United States could have a stable meat economy that took in, uh, produced animals for slaughter, slaughtered those animals and turned those slaughtered animals into meals at a regular interval without any major disruptions. And the business cycle or the cattle cycle as it was under, as it was used in that context would happen, but it wouldn't disrupt things because that's the way many people saw the Great Depression as being a huge cyclical disruption. 
And the goal was to allow for the United States' then booming population to sustain itself off of a beef-based diet because that was a very highly demanded beef meat. Even if pork was consumed more, poultry was consumed very minimally. That rises much later. The goal was to meet people's demands. Now, the question then became, and that's what my book looks at, is how to do it. And so over the decades, this battle raged where at specific turning points, different issues became these kind of like crystallizing moments where producers and consumers typically would battle against each other to try to shape the political economy. And going into the 1950s, producers had nothing but uh, their hopes and dreams. And consumers had actually achieved amazing levels of control on the economy to make producers and laborers' lives better. But by the 1980s, when my book ends, that was basically flipped, where producers were able to set the tone of the political economy and consumers and, in, and laborers in particular found themselves no longer able to do what they had done very recently, which is make the federal government produce rules, laws, regulations, investigations that served their needs. And so my book looks at this battle and tries to uh, look at how come this battle emerged, what happened throughout its uh, existence, and what was the end result of it. And in fact, going into the 1980s, there was a huge battle over monopoly in the meat industry, but one that ultimately fizzled out. And I kind of want to explain why that is, considering not but uh, 60 years ago, the 1920s, even into the 1920s, that was not the case at all. And in fact, the federal government had put the meat industry into a master compact uh, to regulate the industry. The, 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 the interesting thing about post-war United States is the audacity of the vision of what America was going to be and becoming. And that audacity has with it deep problems. After all, it's built on exclusions, particularly African-American, but it still was a vision of at least 50% or more of Americans having something as unprecedented as eating a steak dinner every day. And it was audacious and it fit into a larger vision of the United States becoming this, you know, this utopian country of success and futurism and all the modernisms and all that great stuff that we pick apart as, you know, intellectual historians pick apart. And one of the flow, one of the things that flowed out of that was actually being able to eat that utopian vision, actually being able to feel it at the end of the day in your tummy as you were like, ah, this is what I like. And this is how I know I've made it to eat a kingly meal. Beef just represented that meal. So, so how, how was it that the that the government influenced the market to, to enable this to happen and to make it easier for people to eat beef. Subtly and with great uh, consternation and conflict. Because on as World War II and the Great Depression to a lesser extent proved, the federal government could tell people what the price of a steak was. And it was capable of doing that. After World War II, the federal government could take over steak producing factories and make the meat flow if it was, for example, um, if there, for example, was a, uh, a run on steaks and prices were rising or what have you. The meat industry didn't want that ever again. <laughs> and so consumers working with laborers and meat uh, producers battled each other for what, were the what would be the true dynamics and dimensions of this um, economy that would produce enough steaks that everyone could have one all the time. And it included 
putting consumers and laborers, putting pressures on their lawmakers to intervene into the economy when needed and producers trying to push back against it while at the same time, producers asking for the federal government to intervene in the economy to serve their needs. One of the big dramatic examples is limiting the amount of beef that could be imported into the United States in the early 1960s under the free trade administration of the Democratic parties, Kennedy and Johnson. Uh, and it, it was really a battle over whether or not the government has the power and the right to intervene on the in the economy for producers or consumers. Was this more of a, I'm trying to figure out here whether the, the supply or the demand was more important. Was it that people wanted beef or that the government was trying to kind of subtly brainwashing people into thinking you're eating more beef, so you must be wealthier. You know, so so was it real kind of a cultural hunger for beef, or it was something that was a government plan? Yeah, it was. This is what really gets interesting, and in my work is more focused on policy. So I'm trying to find a way to, as a writer, bring in good cultural analysis without taking away from the politics and policy. But basically, no. You didn't need to tell Americans in 1950 steak was good for you. <laughs> Quite the opposite. It was incredibly controversial. But at the time, this is when the heart disease issue first broke in the wake of the Korean War and um, autopsies of American dead turning up to have young people with, you know, with artery problems and such starting to make people go, wait, what? Wait, too much beef is a bad thing? Huh? <laughs> and uh, it, that makes no sense to me to the point where even in the 1970s, going without steak for a boycott women worried about their husband's health and they wanted to get medical opinions before they did it to their families of not buying meat for a week in order to make sure they weren't causing lasting harm because the assumption was there was something special about beef protein that mm -hmm. made it super uniquely awesome amazing muscle building height building uh transforming americans into a special specimen of people who are taller who weigh more who can lift more who can do more work and you just you didn't need to advertise beef. Now, there would be advertising campaigns for, for meals or for specific cuts. But the thirst, the thirst, that's not the right. That's not the right word. The hunger for beef was real. <laughs> and interestingly, in the 1980s, there was such a retraction of beef consumption that the beef industry, cattle producers had to figure out how to juice the sales again to the heights of the 1970s, which were when beef consumption was at its height per person. And they came up with the campaign slogan of beef, it's what's for dinner, because Americans needed to be reminded that beef was what's for dinner. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a something. So this makes me think a lot about how consumer tastes change over time and, and kind of the health controversies that go along with that as well. You know, I, I run up against this the the perception of there being something special about animal protein i think is something that that is still kind of widely believed today and you know you run up against this in in child nutrition and, and sometimes you get these cases like i think there was some municipality in italy that made it illegal to give babies a vegan diet because they because they you know they believed that meat was so essential to to development um, and of course, now, you know, we so we're increasingly aware now of, of different options we have, you know, meat substitutes and, and, and other things that, that can replace meat in our diet. And, you know, I think a lot of the um, concern about this comes from environmental issues. And that's actually usually the, the way that the issue is framed. But of course, people also think a lot about, about animal welfare as well. What do you kind of think about i mean this is a this is a big question you know but when you view these this change that's happening at the moment i think has really become quite palpable in in the last five years or so 
How do you kind of view this, given your historical knowledge of of, of the way that, that this has changed over time and, and, you know, perhaps actually how slowly consumer taste can change? Um, so, yeah, just I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to do the historian caveat, right? I'm good at the past. I don't predict the future, right? That's why I get to just totally dodge the, the, the moral weight of having to answer this really important question. Um, but uh, But on a serious note, the I think there is a huge amount of unpredictability. I mean, I think if I was in 1971, I couldn't have predicted maybe that McDonald's and fast food would soon to become a meal rather than seen as a snack, uh, with the caveat being that for African-American consumers, fast food was already becoming a meal. So, you know, it's just, it's not always predictable it's going to happen. You have to know where to look to see where the trends are rising and you can't get distracted by false trends that you might not, uh, you might see and you think are important, but turn out not to be. But I think that there is, I mean, as long as there's an increasing concern on the globe as a thing that human action hurts, there will be a focus on non-meat diets. And this goes back to the 1970s with um, Diet for a Small Planet and the emergence of, you know, on a large scale, an alternative consciousness about food and consumption. Um, and I think it's revealing that major meat producers are invested in the non-meat industry. I think that's perhaps the biggest tell of where things are probably heading. And, you know, the a lot will have to do with Americans' vision of gender and gender labor and work patterns. For example, food pro- procuring food for, food for family is still a feminine role. Their, their choices, their visions, their opinions, their relationships with their loved ones really shapes what gets purchased in consumed uh, women in the 1950s and the 1970s talked about you know their husbands needing beef and feeling like it was their job there they were the best woman they could be if they could turn an income into the largest amount of food possible and the, the, there's a great deal of which i think you just alluded to there's a great deal of kind of cultural and political headwinds though you know opposing any shift away from large-scale Meat consumption in the U.S., right? So, the, I mean, there's a few things that, that stick in my mind over the last few years. So there's been this emergence as, of soy boy as kind of an epithet that gets used by the alt-right to, to apply to, mm-hmm. um, to people on the left. There was the time when um, Sebastian Gorka, I think, was at the RNC. This was a, a particularly kind of crazed White mm-hmm. House aide uh, to Trump. And he he equated the Green New Deal with communism and, and said the Democrats want to take your hamburgers. And then perhaps the, the most ridiculous one that I remember was Jordan Peterson claiming to eat an all-beef diet for a series of months or, or years or something. And, and you know, so th- there is still, isn't there, this, this really strong equation between meat-eating and masculinity, which, mm. I, I'm, you know, I think in, in U.S. culture is much stronger than, than we find in, in Europe. And, yeah, it seems <laughs> unlikely to imagine that that's going to change uh, anytime soon, I guess. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And it's and it definitely is historically long standing in the United States to identify masculinity and maleness with beef and meat and red uh, bloody food. And this. Yeah, this is definitely an interesting moment. I mean, about the communism thing was ironic is, of course, communist governments fell because they didn't provide beef. Um, the federal the, the communist governments uh, of the Soviet Union spent the entire century that they existed or, you know, slightly less than a century, trying really hard to get what the amount of beef that American consumers ate 
into their uh, into their uh, into the, the Soviet uh, people, and they failed. So it's quite the opposite, actually. Communism historically is a movement to get beef and meat, particularly into people's uh, workers' diets. So, yeah, the 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 cultural definitions and understandings and visions of meat will play a role in the politics of it, whether or not consumers and workers demand and can successfully force a pro-worker, pro-labor, pro-consumer political economy, or whether or not it remains increasingly, as has been the trajectory since the 1980s, very pro-producer, very much in interested in shielding producers from the effects of consumer and labor demands. And then there's there's also the the issue of um, of laws and particularly state laws, right, which have targeted meat and dairy alternatives. So actually, in in some ways, the EU is more regressive than the US in this regard because, for instance, in the EU, you can't sell um, soy milk and you can't call it soy milk, so it has to be called soy drink um, rather than soy milk. And 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 I think the the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is actually considering a similar rule in the US. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think they've been considering that for for a really long time actually, because guess they 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 can't decide. But the um, at the state level, there's been quite a few movements like this, right? So so that you can no longer call, for instance, um, yeah, you know, uh, say a, a hamburger made from a meat substitute, you can't call it a burger. And I, it seems to me that, that these laws often fail just on kind of free speech grounds. But but then do, do you think this kind of speaks to the alliance between agribusiness and government, I guess? So maybe it's a um, maybe it's a question of whether consumer taste change enough that businesses start to be less concerned about these things or not. Yeah, this by the way, this is a gigantic topic, and it's actually a surprisingly large focus of my work. Uh, so I'm going to try to like really be thin on this and just get to the point. But basically, it's. On the business end, it's actually conflicted. It's uh, you've got multiple different, you know, multiple pockets of uh, industry groups and various industries and various uh, economic activities organizing to say different things. For example, in Missouri, was one of the first, if not the first, bans on calling uh, non-meat plant and particularly lab-grown. That was their main target: lab-grown meat, calling it meat, um, and that was cattle raisers and animal. Uh, producers, raisers of the actual animals. And that means that they're going to go up against the increasingly animal industry supported plant-based <laughs> industry, uh, industry. So it's, it's, there's definitely going to be a larger battle as it emerges and different small time state victories are going to clash with other victories. And they're going to, you know, it's going to be a rough tussle, a rough and tumble process. And I will say, as far as government declaring what food is, that goes back a long time. The um, Meat Inspection Act gave the federal government the power to set what food is. And historically, consumers have actually deeply influenced that, demanding that the meat uh, rules, what the federal government say is a hamburger, reflects consumers' interests. So women in particular, key part of this story, spent a lot of the 1900s arguing with the federal government to try to make sure that their definitions, the federal government's definitions were consumer friendly, while producers organized an entire legal infrastructure within their companies to do the exact opposite. So you had disorganized, occasionally slightly organized consumers against gigantic industrial powerhouses to try to tussle out what is, for example, a hamburger. 
Does it have to be, can it have uh, different types of meats added to it? How much filler can it have? How much fat can it have? Because uh, hamburgers need a certain amount of fat or else they'll fall apart. And it became a huge uh, battleground that slowly stopped being important. And the problem now is with one side or with the producers fighting amongst themselves, who's looking out for consumers and workers in this condition, in this battle. So thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. I've really learned a lot and I'm looking forward to that book. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to have this conversation as well. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Giants Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.